Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. Are you excited to hear from the Word of God this morning? I'm ready to preach. Let's turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians chapter number 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you are ready to hear the Word of God, get your Bible ready, get your mind ready, and we are going to look at all that God has for us from His Word this morning in Philippians chapter number 1. We looked at this passage of Scripture a couple weeks ago when we talked together, and we started off the passage of Scripture by looking at how Paul introduced the book to the people. And then we move now into a part of the book where Paul is praying for the people. If you believe prayer works, pray. If you believe thanksgiving works, be thankful. Paul's showing us here at the beginning of this book, he's saying, thank the Lord. And then after you're done thanking the Lord, start praying to him about what he is doing. And so let's look this morning together for a few moments about the prayer of Paul and what it means for us today as the church. In verse number 9 of Philippians chapter number 1, the Bible says this, This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus unto the glory and praise of God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in these next moments together. Jesus, I pray for open hearts. I pray for excited souls. I pray that the word of God and the spirit of God would excite us. I pray, Lord, this morning that as we hear the word of God, That we would not just, like the Bible says, be hearers of the word only, but that we would be doers of the word. God, instill into this place a fire to reach this community with the gospel. Lord, it feels like often the world is crumbling around us. But God, you've given us the hope. And as believers, God, we want to be people that are hope givers. We want to be people that are life fulfillers. We want to be people that are bringing the joy of our salvation to other people all the time. And Lord, we want to be lifting high the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that we would do that this morning. I pray you'd be with me, just a simple servant. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. I pray you'd guide my words. I pray that you'd hide me behind the cross this morning. Be with those even now, Lord, that are playing games and hearing Bible lessons and shooting laser tag. And Lord, everything that they're doing for the Kids Fest, I pray that you'd bless that time. And I pray it would be powerful, Lord. I pray we'd see souls saved this morning. If one's even in this room that doesn't know for sure that if they were to die, they'd go to heaven. I pray that today would be their day of salvation. And Lord, help us now in the moments ahead. Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. To mature means to develop to a place where substantial growth and development can occur. Today we're going to talk about what it means to mature as a believer in Jesus Christ. I'd like you to think about what's going on in the other building. We have Kids Fest going on. And those ages over there are between ages 4 and 12. How many of you have kids in the room? You have kids. How many of you kids are still in your house, okay? Most of those people are probably volunteering over there. How many of you are glad that your kids are not in your house anymore? Hey, hey, there you go. Those are the good. There you go. That's what I thought. That's good. That's good. You know, kids are interesting creatures. They do things that you never thought they would do. You remember that show that used to be on? Kids say the darndest things, and they would just film these kids saying funny things. You're like, how has anybody ever said that? 
Why? Because kids are maturing creatures. I have two kids. I have a six-month, almost six-month-old, and I have a three-year-old. So my almost six-month-old uh, doesn't sleep through the night yet. You say, how do you know? Because Elena tells me every morning all the times I didn't wake up and help her in the middle of the night. And that's, I need to do better with that. Men, please pray for me. Okay, you know, you, you feel me. I have a three-year-old. I'm trying to teach him, or we're trying to teach him right now how to use the bathroom. We're trying to teach him how to pick up after himself. We're trying to teach him to put his clothes away after he takes them off at night and not just leave them on the floor in his room. Why? Because that's part of the process of maturing. How many of you married in the room? Married people in the room? How many of you thankful you're married? Yeah, that's good. Husbands, wives, good. This week, Elaine and I celebrated five years of marriage. It's awesome. Yeah. We had a great anniversary. And some of you that have been married much longer than us are sitting there thinking, man, you got a long way to go, and I'm glad. Please tell me all the secrets, please, because I need them. I need them very badly. But I'll tell you this, over the last five years, we've done a lot of maturing together. A lot of maturing together. And listen, we still have a long way to go. As a church... We matured. It was so neat a couple, mo- a couple months ago to, uh, to see Mr. Kevin up here giving all of those different stats and, and the, the history of our church, right? And he showed pictures and stats and he showed all the different pastors and he showed us how we were on one street and moved to another and built another building and had a school and all these things. Why? Because God was maturing us as a church. Those of you that work in finance, you know that if something's going to come to fruition, we say that this, this, this investment is going to what? Come to maturity. Maturity is simply to develop to a place where substantial growth and development can occur. When we get to our story in Philippians chapter 1 today, I love this story because it's Paul praying for a group of people who were maturing in their faith. Normally when Paul wrote a book to a group of people like Corinthians or Galatians or uh, first he wrote to the church of Thessalonica, he would write these stories or he would write these letters to them because there was some issue in the church. He would write this letter and he would say, look, I I love you, grace and peace be with you. And then he would say, here's all the problems that need to be fixed. But when you get to the book of Philippians, there's a very different tone that Paul takes. In fact, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy in the Christian life. Paul very deeply loved the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi, for all intents and purposes, was a very healthy church. It was a church that knew what they believed, knew why they believed it, and they kept the main thing, the main thing. And this made Paul very, very happy. But Paul knew that any good church that was doing something for the Lord was going to face adversity. And so Paul said, I'm thankful for you as a church, but I have a prayer for you. And listen, if the Apostle Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, Don't you believe that it would behoove us in 2021 to see what he prayed for this church? So this morning, we're going to unpack this prayer of Paul. And really, the prayer boils down to this. It's a prayer for Christian maturity in this church. It's a prayer that they would get beyond head knowledge and start practicing what God had called them to practice. So here's what I want you to know this morning. Here's the big idea. God wants you to be continually striving for spiritual maturity. Let's all read it together. You ready? God wants you to be continually striving for spiritual maturity. One more time. Take on. God wants you to be continually striving for spiritual maturity. Let me ask you the question this morning. Don't answer out loud. Do you believe that you are striving for spiritual maturity in your life. You see, I looked at kids, I looked at my marriage, I looked at our church, and all those things are what? Still in the process of maturing. And so what do I mean by that? I mean we're never done maturing in any area of our life, especially in our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. And so as Paul unpacks this morning, we're going to look at four things that he says, look, folks, here's four things I'm praying for you, church at Philippi, that I want you to mature in, and we're going to unpack them this morning. You ready to go? Got your seatbelts on? We're going to move fastly. Okay, or very quickly, I guess I'd say. Fastly, all the grammar people in here, bad. Very quickly, that's how we're going to move this morning. Very quickly. Number one, you ready? Here we go. 
We need to be people that mature in our love. Mature in our love. Here's what Paul prayed. He said, look, church at Philippi, I pray for you that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and all judgment. Remember, we said this is what kind of a church, healthy or unhealthy? It's a healthy church. And so if you look at the healthy church, you have the assumption that these people already were people of love. In fact, the reason Paul is writing the letter to Philippi is because these people showed love to Paul. There's a guy named Epaphroditus who, while Paul was in prison where he's writing this letter, brought Paul some goods, some food, some things to help him along his journey. And Epaphroditus brought these things to Paul. And when Epaphroditus brought these things to Paul, it was a sign of Christian love from the church at Philippi to a person they loved, Paul. But Paul said, look, I'm not satisfied with your love. Why? Because I want you to love yourselves more and more and more and more. Listen, in our lives, we tend to love things that we can relate to, right? They say opposites attract. But usually those opposites at the very beginning have something in common. You were in the same place at the same time. You happen to be going to the same college. You had some mutual friend who, who put you guys together. But when it comes to church especially the church at Philippi, these people had nothing in common. There was one thing they had in common, and we know what that is. We'll get to it in a minute. But the reason Paul was praying for their love was because when a bunch of people that have nothing in common except for Jesus get together, oftentimes there can be problems. Now, it shouldn't be that way. But the fact of the matter is we see in the Bible that the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. So when this church began, we looked at it a few weeks ago, it began with a lady named Lydia, the seller of purple. So the seller of purple would have been somebody who was maybe a fashionista of the day. She would have been a clothes designer. She would have sold fabrics so that people can make clothes. The second person that was saved at Philippi was a young girl who was demon-possessed. And Paul literally cast a demon out of her and she became a Christian. The third person that was able to be saved at Philippi was a jailer or would have been like a police officer or maybe a, a secret service agent a little bit higher up than just a normal beat cop. It would have been a high-level operative in the military. So you've got a military operative, you've got a fashionista, and you've got a demon-possessed girl. These three people have nothing in common. But what happens? All three of them trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then begins the church at Philippi. So when you get a bunch of people that have nothing in common except for Jesus together, Paul says, look, I know you're going to have to love one another. And your love must go deeper than just, oh, I like you because we have the same thing in common. We have the same sports team. We like the same restaurants. We go to the same schools. It has to be deeper than that. And that's why he says, I want your love, what's the word he uses? To abound to grow, to mature. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you willing to take an honest look at yourself and see, am I loving others the way that I should? Is my love growing? Is it abounding? Or is it stale and stagnant? In another one of Paul's writings to the Corinthians, he talks about what it looks like to be a person of love. He wrote to the Corinthian church. Now let me ask you this for those Bible scholars in the room. Was the Corinthian church a healthy or unhealthy church? Unhealthy. Very good, Carol. It was an unhealthy church. There was a whole lot of problems with the church in Corinth. In fact, a lot of the problems we see in our church today correlate with the same problems that were in the church at Corinth. So Corinth, a very unhealthy church. A church that was struggling big time. In fact, so much so, so much so that Paul had to write them two letters. It'd be kind of like this. You that remember when you were little, it'd be like your mom saying, Richard. And then your mom saying, Richard Benjamin. Now you know you're in big trouble. Why? Because she used both names. So Paul writes two letters to these people at Corinthians. Why? Because they had a lot of problems he had to get right. And in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes to these people, he talks to them about love. Let's look at what he says. Can we do that together? 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, that word charity is also translated love, I am become as a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove the mountains, and I have not love, what are the next three words? I am what? Say it out loud. Nothing. And though I give my body to be burned, and though I have given all that I have to feed the poor, and though I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. He goes on and he says this, he says, But love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not, love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices, listen, listen to this, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love, charity never faileth. But listen to this. Where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, miracles, they shall cease. Where there be knowledge, listen to this. Where there be knowledge, it shall pass away. What is Paul saying to these people? He's saying, look, it doesn't matter how wonderful you are if you don't simply love each other. It doesn't matter if you give everything that you have to feed the poor. If I'm at home right now and sold everything that I had to feed a bunch of hungry people overseas, and I didn't do it in love, if here's the reason I did it, oh, why did you do that, Rich? Because I really wanted to be on the news. Because I knew if, they, if I fed all these people, they'd get me on the news. If I had the gift of prophecy, oh man, I, I'm very eloquent. If I had the gift to do miracles, oh man, look what I can do. If I'm not doing it in love, it doesn't matter. If I'm not saying I have your best interest in mind in what I'm doing, it doesn't matter. In fact, what does the Bible say? kind of annoying, isn't it? That's what it's like when you do something without love. It's like a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. See, our society has twisted this whole idea. Because when Paul's saying, look, folks, I want your love to abound more and more and more, he knew because it was going to be difficult to do that. He knew that people always were going to look out for number one unless their spirit was right. And we'll get, that there and we'll get to that in just a moment. But that's why he said, look, Corinthians, love suffereth long. What does that mean, church? Love puts up with a lot. Love is kind. What does that mean, church? Does that mean when it's easy to be kind? No. It means all the time. Love envieth not. Man, I'm so glad that person's gifted in that way. Not, I wish that was me. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. You're not trying to self-promote. It is not puffed up. You're not putting yourself first. It is not easily provoked. Man, this is a big one in our society. Why? Because we've got a bunch of keyboard warriors. Did you see what? I told him. I told her. I bet they're going to vote Republican now. They won't. But you know what? At least you got your two cents in. But was it in love or were you provoked? It's not easily provoked. I love this next part. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Listen to me, folks. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. But it rejoices in the truth. You know what our problem is sometimes? We love a juicy story. We love all the details of all the things that happened. Why? You know why? Because we don't love each other the way that we should. And we rejoice in iniquity. Instead of just rejoicing in the truth. Now here's the hardest part of this whole thing. Beareth all things. How many, don't, don't answer out loud, but just think to yourself. How many of you have had to deal with something hard with a brother or sister in Christ? Something that was very uncomfortable. Believeth all things. Are you cynical? Do you 
trust that this person is telling you the truth because you love them? Or do you always think, oh, why did they say it that way? Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. I want the best for you. I want to see you succeed. Hopeth all things. Now here's, here's a big one. Endureth all things. The way I look at this one, endureth all things. I used to be a runner. I need to get back into it. But when you run, oftentimes those of you that do, you sometimes get this cramp right here in your side. How many of you can relate with me? Say amen. Good. Those people see me after. We're going to start running together. Okay, look. All, all, you get a cramp right there in your side, okay? And you know, sometimes what happens is that cramp comes in and you're still like two miles from home. The worst thing that could ever happen to a runner. So you know what you have to learn to do? Deal with it. Endure it. Endure it. The only way to do that, church, is to love each other the way that we should. Love endureth all things. Then I love this last verse. Why? Last verse. Why? Because it says, love never faileth. But listen, where there be prophecies, are prophecies good, yes or no? Yeah, but you know, one day they're going to they're gonna stop. Where there be tongues, those are miracles. Are miracles good or bad? Yes or no? They're good. They shall cease. Now listen to this. Where there be knowledge, man, I know so much about the word of God. It shall pass away. And Paul's trying to motivate these people in Corinthians, and he's doing it again in Philippi, to get beyond knowing it up here and practicing it out here. Why? Because head knowledge one day will pass away. But love never faileth. Now, Paul does give a warning here. He says, look, love may abound more and more, but then he gives a stipulation. He says, but I want it to abound in knowledge and truth. And I want you to catch this this morning because there would be many people who would interpret this, well, then you just need to accept me for who I am. You just need to endure me for who I am. But listen, does love rejoice in iniquity or does love rejoice in the truth? Love rejoices in truth. So if love rejoices in truth, that means I do not accept you for who you are. What that means is I'm going to lovingly take the word of God, show you the truth. Why? So that I can win you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because I disapprove or because I don't like you. No, but very oppositely because I love you in knowledge and in truth. You don't got to ask me if I like it. Ask Jesus if he liked it. And if he didn't like it, guess what? I don't like it either. And so when you have that friend, that person, that colleague, that coworker who is sitting there saying, well, why can't I just be and do and think and live the way that I want to live? You can look at them, listen, speaking the truth in love and saying, because the Bible said so. And that's not a caustic, mean attitude. That's so much love in there, folks. Why? Because you can love them dearly because you have the truth. And that's why Paul said, in all knowledge and in all judgment, in all truth, love one another. So number one, we got to mature in love. We got to mature in love. Number two, he says this. He says, we must mature in our priorities. We must mature in our priorities. Here's what verse number 10 says, that same passage, Philippians chapter 1. Look at, with, look at it with me here. Philippians 10 in, verse, in chapter 1, verse number 10 says, that ye may approve the things that are excellent. In other words, what he's saying is that you may approve, that you'll validate the things that truly matter. You'll validate the things that truly matter. You know, oftentimes we get caught up in our minds with a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter for eternity. Here's a good example of this. When I was, I believe, 12 or 13 years old, I can't remember exactly, but I got my first job. And my first job was a summer job, and I washed dishes in a kitchen. Tons of fun. And you know why it was tons of fun? Because me and all my friends, we were doing it together. That's why it was fun. But I'll tell you, it was gross. It was gross. Every single day, these people, it was a camp. And so all these kids, so you have teenagers eating on a plate, unsupervised, and then sending these unsupervised plates through a conveyor belt for other teenagers to clean. So just imagine in your mind all the things that I saw as I looked at this plate. There were, it was so funny. There was this one boy that worked with us, and there was a girl that was at the camp that saw him in the dishroom and liked him. And so you know what she did? 
She wrote, I like you, call me on a napkin and sent it through the conveyor belt on him for a play. His best day of work ever, probably still to this day. <laughs> so we would take these plates off the conveyor belt, we'd clean them off, we put them away. Was it fun work? Absolutely not. Was the people I did it with fun? Absolutely. But why did I do that work? I did it for one reason. Why? Because the end of the month was coming. And what did I want as a 12 or 13 year old? Money. Money, 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 money. 12 and 13 years old, money is everything. And some of you are like, money's still everything. We can talk afterwards. I'll show you it's not true. Um, but listen, money was everything at 12 and 13. And man, if I knew if I had some money in the bank, I could do what I wanted to do. And I told my dad when I got this job, I said, Dad, this, is, uh, this was around the time that the iPod Touch was just coming out. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. It's like the thing that we carry around in our pocket now. But back then it was like cutting edge and they had it as an iPod touch. And so I said, Dad, I I want to get an iPod touch. And so I got my very first paycheck. And I got my paycheck on a Tuesday. And I said to my dad, Tuesday night I got home, I said, Dad, we got to go to Best Buy. And he said, why, son? I said, because I got to get my iPod touch. And I didn't just buy the iPod touch. Channing, you know what, or Jalen, you know what I bought? I bought the 32 gig. At the time, that was a big deal. 32 gig iPod Touch. That means it had a lot more space to hold a lot more stuff that I wanted to be on this thing. I spent my money on this iPod Touch. I was so happy. I got that thing. I put my headphones in. I was on the way home. We got home. I hooked it up. I downloaded all my stuff, and I was ready to go. I played with it all night, but then the next day came, and I was sitting in my room, and I realized something. I'm broke. Why was I broke? Because my priorities were all out of whack. What I should have done is I should have put a little in the offering plate and I should have put a little in savings and I put a, should have put a little in a college fund and then I should have called Josh and said, Josh, I need some insurance and then I should have done all these things. That's what I should have done at 12 and 13. But you know what? I didn't. Why? Because my priorities were out of whack. Listen to me this morning. Paul is telling these people here, he's saying, look, approve the things that are excellent. Wonder and worry about what really matters. Here's what I believe. I believe that a lot of good-intentioned people with good motives do a lot of things that don't matter because their priorities are all out of whack. Did you get that? I believe good-intentioned people with good motives do a whole bunch of things that don't matter because their priorities are out of whack. Because they're not approving the things that are excellent. They're approving what makes them happy. Because we can make ourselves feel so good. Like all these people that do so much. When, man, we fed the poor. Remember, we fed the poor. Remember, we fed the poor. We, we helped these people build this house. We did all these things. Are those things good? Yes, but the priority is not doing good things. The priority is what Paul said, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our number one priority as the church, the number one excellent thing as the church is the gospel of Christ. Paul says in Philippians later on, he says, brethren, listen friends, I count not myself to have apprehended. He says, I'm still maturing, but there's one thing that I do do, forgetting these things which are behind and reaching forth to these things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, look, I am not made it yet, but there's one thing that I've got right. Nothing else outside of the gospel really matters for eternity. And when Paul's praying for the Philippian church, he says, look, church, make the gospel a priority. Approve things that are excellent. Listen, ask yourself the question this morning, are your priorities in line? Do you care about the sharing of the gospel more than you care about anything else? Because if you do, you know what that means in your life? You're approving the things that are excellent. But if you don't, There needs to be some time between you and your Savior where you sit down humbly and say, Oh God, forgive me for my misaligned priorities and help me to focus on the gospel and Him alone. What is the gospel? For those of you that in the room that don't know what the gospel is, the gospel is simply this. We are all inerrantly bad. 
We are born with a sin nature. In fact, the Bible tells us this. It says there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none that seeketh after God. And because we are inherently bad, because we are sinners by nature, the Bible says that Jesus had to send us a sacrifice so that our sin could be forgiven. Because the Bible says clearly that without the shedding of blood, there is no payment, no remission for our sins. And so 2,000 years ago, God sent his son named Jesus to this world, and he lived a perfect, holy life for 33 years. And at the end of those 33 years, the entire world rejected him and turned him away and nailed him to a cross, all in God's providence. And the Bible says that the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, were placed upon Jesus at the cross. And when our sin was placed upon him at the cross, that moment that our sin was placed upon him at the cross, our sins were completely forgiven because he died as a sacrifice for the payment of those sins. And then the best part of the story is this, and not only did he pay for the sins, he then conquered the death of sin by three days later rising again. And then he says this, he says, look, church, I'm not going to make it hard for you because I'm just going to say this very, very clearly. I love you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he says in the book of Romans that, look, if you'll just confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, that moment you will be saved. And if you've done that in the room this morning, you know where you're going to spend eternity. Our dear sister who went home to be with the Lord this week, I know that she's celebrating in heaven all that God did. But you know if she was here right now and she would tell you, you can't do it on your own. You've got to trust Jesus for salvation. And the gospel, for those of us that are saved, is the excellent thing where our priorities need to be placed. I believe also Paul not only put priority on the gospel, but I believe Paul put priority on the word of God. Listen, if we don't have a word of God, then we should pack it all up and go home. Let me say that again. If we don't have the word of God, then we, could, we should just pack this whole thing up and go home. This book, the actual inspired word of God, must, must, must be the thing that we are approving all things by. Because the only way to know what's excellent is to look at what's excellent. There's no flaws in this book. There's no mess-ups in this book. There's not a comma or a, a period out of place in this book. Why? Because this is what God wants our standard to be. And if our standard is the word of God, you know what that means, church? That means we're going to approve the things that are excellent. We're going to have the right priorities. What did John say? John said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through truth. Then what does it say? Thy word is truth. Paul's prayer was that our priorities would be aligned. Let me ask you this morning, are your priorities based upon the gospel and the word of God? If I were to look at your checkbook this morning, could I tell that your priorities were at the gospel and the word of God? If I were to look at your relationships this morning, could I tell that your priorities were the gospel and the word of God? If I were to look at your spiritual walk this morning, one-on-one -on -one time with God, would they solidify the fact that your priorities are the gospel and the word of God? If I were to look at your church life this morning, would I be able to solidify that your priority is the gospel or the word of God? Listen, folks, our lives are way too short to have misaligned priorities. And Paul was praying for his friends that they would just approve the things that are excellent, focus on what really matters. Not only did he say mature in your love and mature in your priorities. Number three this morning we see this in verse number 10 and 11. That we are to be maturing in our spirit. Maturing in our spirit. Now look, these are all building one upon another. We're about to get to the end in just a minute. They're all building one to another. Because our love oftentimes stems from right priorities. 
And our right priorities oftentimes stems from a right spirit with the word of God. We talked a few weeks ago about the spirit of Christianity. If you were here, you looked at that with us in the first six verses of this passage. And as Paul solidifies the spirit of Christianity, now he's moving to a portion where he's now praying for their spirit. He says, look, in verse number 10, I'm praying that you may be sincere. That word also meaning authentic and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus. Paul prayed that these people would have a spirit of authenticity among him. The, the word sincere means I'm free from pertinence or deceit, proceeding from genuine feelings for someone or something. See, Paul knew that these people would need prayer for sincerity because things were simple and they could be authentic when it was just those three people. But as the church grew, he knew how easy it was going to be to begin to play a game. He starts off by saying, I'm, I'm praying for your sincerity. I'm praying for your authenticity. You know, in our culture today, don't you wish that authenticity was publicized more? In fact, the truth of the matter is, what we are fed is a very unauthentic story. What we are fed in our hearts and our minds in our philosophies and our schools is a story that is controlled by a narrative, not controlled by the truth. And there are millions of people that are searching for something real. They're searching for something authentic. Barna, which is a church group, did a study recently and they said in ages 20 to 35, as they polled that group, they said, what's the one thing that you're looking for in a church? And the number one answer out of all these people that they surveyed was the word authenticity. They want sincerity. They want to know they're getting the real deal. Oftentimes we struggle with this. You know why we struggle with it? We struggle with it because, number one, we're not loving each other like we should. You see, church ought to be a place where you can authentically come and share what's happening in your life with no fear of rejection. Church ought to be a place where you can get your questions answered without no fear of being turned away. A church ought to be a place where you can feel like the relationships that you're having are people that actually care about you and are not just smiling and walking by as they head to lunch on Sunday. But you know what the problem is? The problem is we've left what Paul's praying for. We've left an authenticity, a sincerity about our spirit. And we've allowed ourselves in our spirit to no longer feel like I need to be real with you and you need to be real with me. We get by by saying, hey man, see you next week. And we leave no differently than we came in. And the only way to go deeper in the word of God is to be authentic in our relationships with each other and with Jesus Christ. And Paul said to these people, I'm praying that until the day of Jesus Christ that you'll be sincere. That you'll be real with each other. If we pretend that we have no problems with each other, can I just say, we're lying. Because 1 John says, if any of you have sin, and, or any of you say you're not a sinner, what are you doing? You're lying. And the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, what does the Bible say? He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all of those unrighteousnesses. But a church that it does not allow room for failure is not a church that is loving people. It's a church that says we love being with each other, but we don't love that dirty world out there. Paul said, look, folks, stop playing. Please don't play a game, Church of Philippi. Please don't get into a place where you're just worried about yourselves. Get to a place where you're authentic with one another and with the world and share the love. He not only prays for their spirit to be authentic, to be sincere, but he also prays for their spirit to be without offense. That word meaning blameless, 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 blameless. 
First Peter says this, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from a filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you know what Paul says when he says, I want you to be without offense, church? He says, I want you to be blameless. I want you to be holy. Think about your life this morning. How do you know if you're holy? How do you know if you're blameless? How do you know if you're without offense, like Paul says? Listen to me this morning. Is there anything in your life that if somebody besides you and God knew about, you would be completely and totally embarrassed? Is there any thought or feeling or emotion that you had this week that if anybody knew about that except for you and God, that you would be very embarrassed? If you answered yes, that means you still got a lot of work to do maturing in your spirit. Guess what? So do I. Why? Because we're never going to reach holiness. But what Paul's praying is that we strive for it. We learn from it. We yearn for it. And if our church would get to a place where we're striving to be blameless in all that we do, in our relationships, in our personal lives, in our finances, in our relationships with our family, God could work in such incredible ways. But can I tell you what I think happens a lot of times? We're just okay being just okay. Because we're pretty good. We're sitting at church on Sunday. We came Wednesday. We served at the thing Tuesday night. We go to a Sunday school class. We do all these things. But what is Paul praying? He's praying to be blameless. He's praying to be sincere, authentic. Not just like, I'm pretty good. He's saying strive for holiness in your life. Strive to be perfect and without offense in your life. And in a culture where it's easy to hide behind a glass and hide behind a wall and hide behind a phone and hide behind a lifestyle, be authentic with God. Be authentic with each other. Be blameless with God. Be blameless with each other. Why? Because God is begging you. Paul is praying. He's saying this is what spiritual maturity looks like. Lastly, for spiritual maturity, the Bible says this. What does it look like? Okay, so you want to strive for holiness. You want to strive to be perfect. You want to strive for a spirit of authenticity. But how do you do it? How? Paul tells us. I love this. Paul tells us in Galatians 5. He's saying, look, how do you know? Because you're doing these things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Listen, you will never go wrong loving someone, having the joy of Jesus on your face, having peace with God, being long-suffering to the sinner, being gentle to the church member, being good to your neighbor, having faith in God, choosing meekness, choosing temperance. Why? Because there's no law against it. And if you're going to mature in your spirit, like Paul is asking us to in this prayer, then you got to be people. All of us have to be people that are striving for these things in our lives. We've got to be people that say, I'm going to put up with things that I don't want to put up with. I'm going to move. I'm going to work. I'm going to have the joy of Jesus. Why? Because I want my spirit to be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, why do we do this, church? This is my favorite, favorite, favorite thing that Paul prays in this prayer. Why do we do this? Why do we strive for maturity in our love? Honestly, why? Think to yourself. Why do we strive for maturity in our priorities? Why? Why do we strive for maturity in our spirit? Because to be honest with you, if we were to compare ourselves amongst ourselves, compared to all those people out there, we're we're pretty good, right? We're pretty good. Well, at least I don't fill in the blank. Well, at least I'm not filling the blank. Well, at least I am because, because we're pretty good. So, so why in the world would we do this? Number four, and we're done. 
We do this because we must mature in our motivation. You see, if your motivation is because I want to be a good church member, it's not a bad motivation. If your motivation is, well, because I, I want to please the pastor, it's not a bad motivation. If your motivation is, well, because I want the blessing of God on my life, well, that's not a bad motivation. In fact, a lot of young Christians have those motivations starting out. Listen, I don't think it's wrong to get saved because I don't want to go to hell. Somebody say amen to that. I don't think it's wrong to go to say to get saved because I don't want to go to hell. Why? Because that's the start out for our motivation. But what is the goal? What's the end game? What are we striving for? We're striving for maturity in our motivation. And here's what Paul says in his passage. He says this in verse number 11. Let me read the whole verse to you. He says, look, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus. Listen, this last phrase, unto the glory and praise of God. God. Why do we do this? To bring glory to God our Savior. We do what we do. We have the love of Jesus, the right priorities, the right things in our life, the right spirit, not so that we can be built, but that we can glorify our Father which is in heaven. Listen, folks, if that doesn't excite you this morning, I don't know what will, because listen, Glorifying your God is the ultimate goal of our lives as believers. Glorifying our God is the thing that he created us for. Why did God create us? To be his and to glorify him. And when we glorify God, we please a God who gave us everything. Please a God who the Bible says is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, the provider, the physical healer. He is the, he is the all-knowing one, the omniscient one, the all-powerful one. He is the one that gives you everything and your job is one, one, one thing. Glorify him. How do you do it? By striving to grow in Christ and be the mature Christian that God wants you to be. Not so that you can look good and be all awesome, but so that you can bring glory to God. And I believe, I truly believe that oftentimes we go into this trap where our motivation becomes man-humanistic-centric and we fall into sin because our goal is not to please God, it's to please a man. And when our goal, and Paul knew this, that's why he prayed it, when our goal is to do all these things unto the glory and praise of God, it makes it so much easier for us. Why? Because man is flawed, man's always going to disappoint you, and man's always going to let you down. But God never will. And if you're trying to mature today so that you can please a spouse or a coworker, or a friend or a colleague or a pastor, I'm not saying that's a bad motivation, but it's unsustainable. Because all those people are going to let you down, disappoint you, sometimes walk away. But when your motivation is, I'm doing what I'm doing to glorify God, you're now maturing in your motivation. Because as you get closer to God in your love, in your spirit, in your priorities, you bring more and more glory to him alone. And when God is glorified, now we see what he wants for our lives. I remind you of this story and then we'll be done. Jesus on the cross knew this to be true. We talked about Jesus dying on the cross earlier. But right before he died on the cross, he went to a garden named Gethsemane. And in this garden, you see probably one of the darkest moments possibly ever recorded in human history. You see Jesus bowing before his father God. And the way I imagine it is he's up on a hilltop and his disciples are a little bit down from him. And I see Jesus and he's, he's bowing at this rock. Remember, Jesus always sets the example. He's bowing at this rock, and he knows what's about to come. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He knows he's about to take the sin, yours and mine, of the entire world upon him. And he goes before God, and he says, God, 
if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, is what Jesus is saying. The Bible tells us that he is sweating great drops of blood. I I can't even imagine what that looks like. I've never experienced something like that. But he is sweating these great drops of blood, and as he's sweating these great drops of blood, he begins to think to God, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. But then he says this. He says, but not my will, but thine be done. See, Jesus' love was you and me. His priorities were right. Jesus' spirit was humble. He said, it's all you, God, it's not me. Jesus' priorities was what God wanted him to do. And his motivation was not him alone, but Jesus, God the Father alone. And I don't know what it is for you in your life today. I don't know where the problem is in your life today. I don't know where the area of maturity in your life is that needs to happen today. But listen, can I encourage you in this way? Be like Jesus. Listen to the prayer of Paul and strive for spiritual maturity. Why? Because God wants all of us to be continually striving for spiritual maturity. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.